Evening church. Around the corner, literally next week. But before our Lord rose again in glorious victory, I want to take you onto a journey, what happened prior to his resurrection. Because prior to his resurrection, we find that Jesus and his crew finds himself in a garden called Gethsemane. Now I want you to turn to your neighbor and say Gethsemane. I want to talk about what happens in this garden. Because this is a crucial event for mankind. Where if we were to perish or if we were to be purchased. Here in Gethsemane, the night before that Jesus was going to be hung on that cross in front of him, was placed a choice. And in this scene, we find him vulnerable. We find him troubled and distressed. We almost find him weak. Now, hang on a minute. That doesn't sound like the Jesus that we know because the Jesus in our minds is Jesus. He is OP. He is imba. He is untouchable, indestructible. And I don't blame you if you have that perception of Christ. Because most of the stories we hear about him is him coming out of every situation on top. He's like, he seems to be always winning. He seems to be always be untouchable. Like in a wedding, people run out of wine and Jesus says, it's okay, drinks on me. And he turns the water into wine and he says, drink responsibly. We find him sleeping on a boat while his disciples are running around yelling, oh, we're going to die. We're going to season fishermen come to wake him up because they were so scared that they were going to lose their life, that they were going to drown and be swallowed up by the sea. And Jesus, he wakes up and he starts talking to the storm, to the weather. Do you talk to the weather? You don't, but he does. And he goes to the weather, chill, just chill. And the storm chilled. We see him coming onto shore. There was this naked man with demons, thousands of demons in him. And the demons ran to him and says, Jesus, son of the almighty living God, don't cast us out into the abyss. Let us go into the bacon. And Jesus nods his head. You can go into the pigs. And as those demons went into the herd of swine, you see Jesus smirks a little bit because he sends them into the ocean and he destroys them all. It almost seems like when we see Jesus face problems or suffering or trouble, his posture is always like, can't touch this. And he flicks his blonde, luscious hair and we see his charming blue eyes and his smile that just radiates confidence and charisma. And he has this halo on top of his head and he has this aura that goes, oh, like how Hollywood would always portray him. But that's totally the wrong depiction of Christ. Because in Isaiah 53, it says, He had no beauty. He had no majesty majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised. He was rejected by mankind. A man of sorrows, familiar with pain. When people saw Him, they would turn the other way. They despised him because they did not value him. And as Isaiah said, it wasn't his appearance that attracts us to him. But as I go through this passage with you today, so if you can turn to Mark 14, this is the event in the garden. It isn't his looks, isn't his appearance 
that we are attracted to him. But as we go through this passage today, I want his love to attract us instead. As he pays the price, as even though man despised him, view him as worthless, but he thought of us as priceless. But before we dig in the passage today, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. We pray that you illuminate this passage for us. Let us understand what it meant to thee for the Holy One to bear our sins. May your Son be glorified and may we be all left in all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was with his 11 disciples because one has already left to, to betray him, to, to sell him for only 30 pieces of silver, which is the, only the cost of an ordinary slave. Here he's with the, the 11 and they find themselves at the entrance of this garden. And he says to the 11 of them, you, you guys sit here, but Peter, James and John, you guys with me. And now, if you know your Bibles well, it's always Peter, James, and John that gets to go on special adventures with Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine yourself as one of the other eight. Because if I was one of the other eight, I would be voicing out, Jesus, in the whole three years, you always get to take them. They always get to go on the special adventures. Jesus, they were recently on a mountaintop and they got to see you transfigure, see you glowing. And they got to meet your homeboy, Abraham and Elijah. What about me? Why can't I go with you? Don't worry about Judas, he's gone. Don't worry about Thomas. Thomas, you just sit down. You're always doubting. But, but Peter gets to go with you. Peter, the guy that always runs his mouth and never, he's, he's all bark, but no talk. He's, he's, always, he's always saying stuff. And, and, and John, John gets to go with you. John, he's so annoying. He thinks he's the favorite. Jesus, what about me? Why, why can't I go with you? That's what I would have said if I was one of the other eight. And what's happened was Jesus still took these three. And along the way, the Bible tells us something began within Jesus. Now, if we get to observe Jesus, he has lost that calm and collective smile that he always had. And he turns to the three and he says, I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die. Can you stay awake? I'm not asking for much. Just stay awake for when I return. Now I can imagine the three amigos here probably shocked because they haven't seen Jesus like this before. They haven't heard Jesus say anything of this sort and and having a body language that that looks so weak. Yeah, okay, Jesus, sure. We we got you. We, We got you. And Jesus the Bible tells us he goes off to pray. And when he comes back, what does he find? He finds all three of them sleeping, knocked out, stone cold and snoring. Jesus comes and he wakes them up. Now in Dr. Luke's accounts, because this is all recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of the Gospels. But in Dr. Luke's account, it tells us when Jesus came back, He was absolutely drenched. He was completely soaked, what seems to be like sweat and blood. 
Now Luke, he's a doctor, he's a physician. Now I know this, this, this situation, this case is quite rare, but it does happen where if you are under immense stress, blood can seep out of your pores. Now imagine that scene as the three were sleeping and as Jesus comes soaked in blood and sweat that wakes them up. Imagine that. Now if it was me, if I was one of the three, I'm sleeping and then I got woken up, you know what I would do? Ah! Bloody Mary. I mean, son of Mary. Because Jesus seems like he just came straight out from a horror movie. It's dark and he's covered in blood and sweat. Like what's going on? I would have been so shocked. And just thinking of this, if I was one of the three, you would think that would they stay awake, right? Because after that shock, after that adrenaline hit that would enter their system, that they'll be focused and they'll be more awake. No, no. What happens is the Bible tells us they fell back to sleep again and again. They fell asleep like two, three times. But on a serious note, let's look at verse 32. When Jesus starts saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he goes off and he starts sweating in blood. Now that begs us the question, what caused Jesus to be in such agony, to be in such anguish, to have this magnitude of distress? Let me first tell you what it is not. This was not in the garden. It was not some new revelation that Jesus got. He was not in the garden praying to his father because he just suddenly realized this new revelation that God told him. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to get pulverized. I'm going to get beaten again and again. And then I'm going to die. What? I'm, I'm going to die? I'm really going to die? No, it wasn't like that. Jesus knew that he was going to die. He was been telling his disciples that he's going to die and how he was going to die. So this, what's agonizing him wasn't new information, wasn't new revelation. But what was it? Let me tell you what it was. It was the cup. The cup gets mentioned again and again in all four of gospel. And in the prayer, which Jesus prays three times, the same thing. He says, Father, if it is possible May you take this cup away from me. If it's possible, I really don't want to drink this cup. So what is this cup? What is this cup that Jesus was going to drink? Was it a physical cup that was right there? No. Let me tell you what it is. If you know your Bibles well, the cup is the representation for the jurisdictional righteousness of let me say that again. The cup is the representation for the jurisdictional righteous wrath of God. That's what it is. Now, if you live in the ancient times, when a monarch is angry at his subjects because his subjects have either betrayed him, either disobeyed him, upset him, or, or committed treason, what the king would present to that subject would be a cup a cup of poison that will tear their insides out and they will die a very painful death. Even the philosopher Socrates died of a cup of poison. 
So this cup is metaphorically an execution that God bestows on those who sin. In Ezekiel 23 verse 32, it talks about how Israelites had strayed away and started worshipping idols. And God says, you are to drink this cup, a cup that is large and deep. It will bring scorn, mockery and drunkenness. Ezekiel then continues, it will bring sorrow, it will bring ruin and destruction. It will tear away at your chest. Isaiah 51 explains this cup is the fury and the wrath of God that it will stagger you. It will bring about your distraction, famine and sword. So this cup is really symbolizes the execution on how God deals with sin. You still with me? And what is sin? Sin is breaking of God's law. It is missing the mark. It is rebellion to God. Now, where did sin come from? What was the original sin? How did sin enter the world? And again, let's travel back even further to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, as God created the heavens and the earth, He also created man, Adam, and then He gave Adam Eve, and He placed in the garden the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, why did God place that tree there? Because if there was no tree, there would have been no sin. But let me tell you, if there was no tree, there would have been no choice. And no choice means it's not true love because Adam and Eve would have just been robots. So God placed that tree there. In Genesis 3, what happened was Satan came and he tempted Eve and Adam. And what happened was out of their choice, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And that's how sin first entered the world. And what happened is we know that the story is God had to take Adam and Eve. He, he says in his counsel, he, he talks to the Trinity, his heavenly host, he says, we got to get them out of here. Or else they will also have access to the tree of life. And if they have access to the tree of life, they will live forever. And so God brings mankind outside of the garden. Now, people think that it was out of God's anger that God kicked mankind out of his presence, out of the garden of Eden. But I beg to differ. It was out of love that God brought man outside. Why? Because what would have been a temporal problem would become an eternal problem. And what God says throughout the Bible is, yes, I I just got to remove you here for a while. But I'm putting into plan, putting into motion to bring you back. Operation salvation, I will send you the law. Not only that, I won't stop there. I will send you servants after servants, prophets after prophets, kings after kings, judge after king after judges. And once you have rejected them all, I will then send my son to represent you, to play on your team, to represent humanity like Adam did, but different to Adam. He will be flawless. He will obey everything that I have commanded. He will be sinless. And I will also send him into a garden. You see, sin began in a garden. So was our salvation was formulated in a garden. Sin began because the first man, Adam, disobeyed God about a tree. Now, you see, salvation comes through the second Adam, Jesus, through obedience to God about dying on a tree. What was placed before Jesus was also... What was placed before Adam? A choice. His own will or his father's will. To take the cup or to not take the cup. 
He didn't have to take this cup. Why? Because he is innocent. He is pure. He is holy. But he still chose the Father's will. And the Father's will for him was to take this cup in place of all humanity. Now, there's people out there that, that preach a lot of grace, which is, which is cool. But then the problem comes when they only talk about a loving God. God is love and that's it. Because they don't even mention anything about God's wrath. Now, if you only start mentioning and preaching that God is love, is love, is love, is love, and, and you, you don't talk about the wrath of God, what happens is there is no place for repentance because I don't even need to repent because God has loved me. No, I can't do that because I believe once you take away the idea of sin, consequences of repentance, death of hell and wrath, what you get is a lesser loving God. If I don't talk about the wrath of God, what I'm doing is I'm degrading, decreasing, dwindling down, watering down what Christ has really done for us. We need to know the the seriousness of our sin. Because the God of the Bible displays for us a love. It's his choice. A love. But a love that costs. And a love that is unconditional. In Gethsemane, three times, Jesus asks his father, Dad, is, is there any other way is there any other way? Can, you, can I not take this cup? Is there any other way out there that I just don't want? Can you take this cup from me? Is there any other way? What was Jesus so, what made it Jesus so repulsive to this cup? Was, I know it's the wrath of God. We know that's the wrath of God. But what does the wrath of God entail? Could it be, as the hour came, his closest friends who said he'll, they'll be there for him. Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll never deny you. Or left him. They all fled. As the hour came, the Son of Man was then betrayed to sinners, handed over to sinners as they made sport out of him, torturing him. As they continued to beat him, as they would pluck the beard off his face, as they would tie him onto a post. And as he hear the public laughing and mocking, he would also hear the whistles of whips lashing towards his back, ripping out skin and flesh. Where was his friends? Where was the crowd that cheered him the week before that says, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now is the same crowd that yells out, kill him, kill him. As a cold, crude cross was placed upon his shoulders, he was forced to be forced by the Roman soldiers to march outside of the city in shame and alone. As he gets to his execution ground, they laid him onto the very cross that he carried. And as they drove nails into his hands and his feet, they lifted him up for all to see, for, for the mocking and scorning. And, and as they celebrated that he is dying, they grab a crown of thorns and they crushed it on his head, crushed it on his brow.
treated as a criminal beside two thieves. But was it the physical suffering that made Jesus so repulsive of the idea to take this cup of wrath? It wasn't. Let me tell you what it really was. It's because Jesus knew that he was going to be separated from his father. Jesus, in all of eternity's past, in all of eternity's present, he was always going to be with his father. Even as he came to this earth as a baby, walked as a man in human flesh for 33 years, every assignment, everything that he did, he was with the father. But he knew this was the only task that would ever cause him to be cut away from his dad. Church, can you imagine the scene? As he was there praying in the garden, the anguish, the agony that he had to go through. Dad, I've done everything that you've asked me. I can do anything that you ask. I just don't want to be apart from you. I just don't want to ever be apart from you. Can the cup pass? This is why on the cross, as Jesus was left there to hang for three hours, suffocating as his lungs were collapsing, as he struggled to take in his next breath of oxygen, he yells out this phrase with, with the last of his strength in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Dad, Dad, where are you? Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, says, as Jesus looked up to the heavens for the Father, what he got was hell in an abyss. The Father who was always there was not seen. Church, I want you to see the seriousness of your sin. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, it talks about the ultimate punishment of sin. The ultimate destruction of sin is to be eternally shut out from the presence of God. So in other words, to be separated from God. That is the wrath of God, is to be separated from Him. And on that rugged cross, as Christ our King, as He took that cup, as He took that cup, the Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. And God, in that moment, turned away from the Son. You see, God did not turn away from His Son because He saw His Son was getting pulverized and punished like, like a father, like, oh, I can't see my child go through that. I, he didn't turn away because of that. No, He turned away from His Son because His Son became my sin. He became your sin. It was because of our sin that separated them. In another angle, let me try my best to attempt to, to make you understand this. So if, if everyone can just close their eyes, close your eyes and don't open them until I say so. Imagine. 
if you were standing right in front of a dam full of dark, black, murky waters that was 10 million miles high and 10 million miles wide, all of a sudden this dam's wall disappeared and all the water came rushing forth towards you like a gushing torrent. You knew in that moment it did not matter how tall you were, how big you were, or how strong you were. It did not matter how much money you had in your bank account. It did not matter what your grades were. It did not matter who you were dating or who you were with. You knew none of those things were going to save you. Yet as you stood there awaiting your doom, you see a cross. And you look up upon that cross, you see Christ shielding you from that very flood. All that water that once surrounded you, wanting to devour you, all disappeared because Christ absorbed it all. Not even a droplet of water even managed to splash onto you. But instead, what dripped onto you was his crimson blood. And the more that it dripped onto you, you see your souls being washed, becoming color that is as white as snow. And also in that moment, you see the heavens open up. You see the father turning away from his son. And before you know it, the father's loving gaze was upon you. You see, Christ did not come and die for us. Christ came to die as us. So we could become the righteousness of God. You see, what the first Adam in that garden, he got us kicked because of his sin, got us kicked out of that garden. But what Christ did in that garden was to bring us home. You can open up your eyes and I'll get the band to come up as we finish up. In remembrance of what Christ has done on the cross, we as a church, as a family, will come to the table tonight. And there are two elements, the bread and the cup, that speaks of volumes of God's salvational love for us. Did you know that the word Gethsemane in its original language means oil press? Now also Gethsemane was a location where olives would have been crushed. And you know what happened to Christ's body? He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Because of his wounds, we were healed. And on that very cross, as Christ took that cup, that wrath of God, as he took that, Jesus also offers us another cup. But this isn't a cup of wrath. This was a cup that represented his blood, the forgiveness of sin, a cup of grace and of mercy. Now this is good news. This is our gospel. In Gethsemane, Jesus saw exactly what was going to happen in Golgotha. Yet he went through it all. If this doesn't convince you on how much Jesus loved you, how costly it was to love you, how unconditionally he loves you, then I don't have anything else in my notes. I don't have any other words of vernacular to try to even attempt to explain it to you. I'm really just relying on the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to see how beautiful is our Jesus. That the moment you start doubting yourself, does, does God even want me? 
Because look at me, I'm a sinner. Look at my weak. I didn't glorify Him. I didn't do anything for Him. I want you to know that Jesus still wants your broken hearts. The cup was before Him. A choice was laid out. His will or the Father's will. His life or our eternity. And Christ ultimately said in that garden, man ate the fruit, but I will climb the tree. Let the wrath of God fall upon me. And as Christ drank every drop of that cup, flips it down, slams it on the table, and he says, it is finished. God bless you, church.